Well, welcome to our third season of Knowledge Casts. If you're a regular listener, we're certainly glad to have you back. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. And we hope that you enjoy today's podcast and will join us again next week. We've got a great list of guests for our third season, and you can read about them by going to jackwwilliams.com and just scrolling down to the podcast section. Our guest today is Jeff Wall. I have followed Jeff's career through a common friend, and I'm excited for you to get to know him today. Jeff, at uh, 46, is a partner with Sullivan and Cromwell that has offices in Washington, D.C. and New York, and is head of the uh, its Supreme Court and appellate practice. And prior to ju- uh, rejoining, actually, uh, his current firm, Jeff served in the office of Solicitor General of the United States as the deputy, uh, principal deputy for two years, and for two years, he actually served as the acting Solicitor General. Uh, Jeff has argued 30 cases before the Supreme Court as part of the Solicitor General's office as well as private practice. And after graduating from law school, Jeff clerked for Associate Justice Clarence Thomas of the Supreme Court. Uh, His legal expertise covers areas such as constitutional law, securities, class action, arbitration, intellectual property, taxation, labor and employment, bankruptcy, and criminal law. Well, I guess, Jeff, I'm going to be talking with a lawyer today, so I need to be careful how I structure my questions so I don't get any objections coming from you. But it's great to have you with us today. Jack, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Well, let's start by reflecting back just a little bit. Uh, You know, it's (laughs) it's a long way from starting as a high school teacher and coach to arguing cases before the Supreme Court. Have you... Have you ever taken time to kind of retrace your steps and kind of look back on the ride that you've been on professionally? Uh, you know, I think about it from time to time. Or I have a younger sister. We talk about it. But you really got to go a little further back than that. I mean, I was born in Snellville, grew up in Roswell, uh, went to public schools, um, Esther Jackson Elementary, Holcomb Bridge Middle, and then uh, Crestwood and Chattahoochee High. Um, my dad uh, was a police officer when I was very young and then uh, worked for a series of building product companies, sort of overseeing uh, hauling and loading trucks. Uh, my mom stayed home with uh, me and my sister, taught piano to some of the neighborhood kids. Um, so, you know, solidly uh, middle class life in um, in you know suburban uh, Atlanta, and uh, it's it, I do sometimes think about how I got from uh, there to here, and I think it's a it's a testament to my parents, really. Um, well, tell me about starting as a teacher and a coach. Where did that start? Well, I graduated college in '98 uh, here in DC. I went to Georgetown here, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do yet, um, and you know, I, I had some interest in teaching, and so I thought I would teach high school for a while and then make a decision on graduate school. I applied all over, um, but the only place I got a job offer was at a small all-boys Catholic high school um, in Orchard Lake, Michigan, called Orchard Lake St. Mary's, uh, part of the Catholic League uh, outside of Detroit. And um, I took a job there, and I taught and coached uh, and lived on campus for a couple of years, and and I loved it. I ultimately decided I wanted to go to law school, but uh, but it was a great time. I I, um, I look back on it with real fondness. I've kept in touch with some of the kids I taught, and they've gone on to do uh, you know really terrific things. Well, what created your interest in law? Yeah, it's not like 
I kind of grew up wanting to be a lawyer, Jack. No one in the family was a lawyer. Still, no one else is. Um, you know, I'd always enjoyed uh, public speaking, and I did debate in um, in high school and college. So I liked uh, I liked arguing. I liked being up on my feet. Um, and I originally thought I might go do a PhD program, uh, but the more I thought about it over time and as I was teaching uh, up in Michigan, I just more and more felt a pull toward law school. Well, I got to ask you this. You're walking into the Supreme Court for your first case. You know, what was kind of going through your mind at that time? Yeah, I think the biggest. So the first case I ever argued in federal court, Jack, was in the Supreme Court. Um, after I went to law school, I clerked for judges for a couple of years. Let me make sure I heard that right. You said the first case you ever argued was actually in front of the Supreme Court? In federal court. So I started out after my clerkships at a law firm here in D.C. as an associate. And I got up on my feet in state court uh, at least once or twice. But I'd never argued anything in, in federal court. And I got hired into the Solicitor General's office. And you know the SG's office, as we'll probably talk about, argues in front of the Supreme Court. And so I got assigned my first case to go argue in the Supreme Court. And I didn't expect to be that nervous. As I say, I mean, I enjoyed public speaking. I had done it for most of my life at that point. Um, and the biggest shock to me, Jack, was how incredibly nervous I was. I couldn't sleep the night before. I couldn't eat. Uh, I ended up just getting out of bed at about three or four in the morning. I went into the office. I practiced in a conference room for hours until we went over to court around you know 9 a.m. Uh, court opens at 10 or the arguments start at 10. And um, and so I had had no food. I'd had no sleep. Uh, <laughs> and I argued this case and I came home and my whole family was there and we were all supposed to go out to a big dinner. And I said, I crashed. I said, look, just let me take a nap. I'm exhausted. Um, and so I laid down and I woke up and it was the middle of the next day. And my family had already taken themselves to the airport and they were gone. <laughs> I, I crashed and I slept for 24 hours straight. It was such a, a nerve wracking experience, but it, it got a lot better. I was still nervous the first few arguments. And then after five or six arguments in the court, um, I, I, I got to a point where um, I wasn't nervous anymore. And I, I really just looked forward to it. Oh, that's that's a great story. Uh, well, every case that's presented before the Supreme Court is obviously great significance. But in the cases that you have argued, uh, was there one particular case that you felt like had the greatest impact? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one one bad and one good. I mean, you know, if you've ever wondered why it used to be that if you wanted to uh, gamble on sports, you had to go to Atlantic City or Las Vegas, but you don't anymore. You can just download an app on your phone and play sports bets. That's because of a case called Murphy that I lost in the Supreme Court uh, where the <laughs> court struck down a federal statute that limited states' ability to legalize sports gambling. So um, I had a big hand in, uh, in the, 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 uh, the fact that you can now uh, gamble on sports all throughout the United States. You know, maybe a prouder one for me, uh, one that was a win, um, it, uh, probably not a case that anybody's heard of, but I argued a case several years ago in the Supreme Court um, dealing with uh, Puerto Rico. Congress had set up a board to oversee Puerto Rico to try to set it back on a path toward fiscal soundness. 
and the structure of the board uh, faced a constitutional challenge that went all the way to the Supreme Court and we were able to prevail. That was pretty satisfying because I think the board has done a very good job of trying to set uh, Puerto Rico on, a, as I say, a path toward fiscal stability and, and solvency. And I think that was a case that made a, a real world difference um, for, for people in, in Puerto Rico. Was there ever a specific defining moment in your law career that you've kind of felt like was the springboard that got you to where you are now? I mean, there are probably two. I mean, the very first one was right out of the gate. I mean, you know, I um, I was not a, a tremendous college student. Um, I was focused on things other than academics and enjoying myself in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and so when I got ready to apply to law school, uh, most of the places I applied, Jack, didn't let me in, but the University of Chicago took a chance uh, and and did, and I'm forever grateful for that. I got a tremendous education there, and I think it put me on uh, the the path that I've been on um, sort of since. And then the other one is probably, you know, I got hired by two great judges to clerk after law school, uh, Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, and then uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. And, uh, and those two, again, took a chance on me. Um, and having those jobs helped make my, uh, my legal career. I think, you know, if I hadn't clerked for them, I probably couldn't have gotten into the Solicitor General's office and I probably wouldn't be able to, to do what I do now. Um, well, you may have just covered uh, two of the folks, but are there anybody in your life that really influenced you more so than others or affected your career? I mean, I'd have to say my parents. I mean, of course, Judge Wilkinson and Justice Thomas as legal mentors. Um, but if you just said, you know, who's influenced your life the most? I mean, like I say, my parents were big believers in the idea that if you worked hard and you carried yourself the right way, um, that each generation can have more and better opportunities than the last. And um, they really drilled that into um, to me and to my sister. And I, I mean, I owe them everything. Um, and so I, I feel incredibly fortunate to um, to have had the parents that I did, and then, as I say, to have had such great mentors in the in the law, like Judge Wilkinson and, and Justice Thomas. I mean, I really I've just been incredibly fortunate over time. Well, there's a lot of people out there that don't quite understand how our legal structure is set up, and you know, you were in leadership roles there in the Solicitor General's office, including acting Solicitor General. Share with us what the Solicitor General's office does. Yeah, so um, it represents the United States, the federal government in front of the Supreme Court. So the federal government's a big place. U.S. Attorney's offices that prosecute criminals. Um, you, you have the Department of Justice, which covers tax and bankruptcy, civil cases, uh, environment and the nat natural 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 resources division. I mean, you know, then you think about all the departments and agencies, all the cabinet uh, departments, and so on. So the federal government's a large place. It's involved in a lot of litigation. In the lower courts, most of the components in the federal government either represent themselves or they're represented in court by the Department of Justice. But as that moves up through the appellate system, there are lawyers at the Department of Justice who specialize in those appeals. And by the time it reaches the Supreme Court, um, that's the Solicitor General's office. So the Solicitor General is the top courtroom lawyer for the United States and represents the, the federal government in every case in the Supreme Court where the federal government has an interest. Sometimes, like I say, that's because the federal government's a party. 
Um, it might be a criminal case where a defendant's on the other side that the federal government has tried and convicted, um, or it might be just a case in which the federal government has an interest as, as what's called an amicus curiae, not one of the parties, but maybe there's a federal statute or a federal, federal regulation at play and how the court interprets that federal law is of importance to the federal government. So they'll come in and, and participate. And in all of those cases, the, the litigation is run by the Solicitor General. Well, that helps me understand it a little bit better. I, th I thought I had a, a handle on it, but you filled in a lot of gaps for me. Well, we're, we're taping this uh, in July, right after uh, the Supreme Court has delivered some pretty high-profile rulings. And as a result of that, uh, it's been under extreme criticism and even personal threats like never before, at least not in my lifetime. You know, as someone who's in that system, what's been your reaction to that? I mean, it's it's hard not to watch it, Jack, with a sense of, of sadness. Um, it's it, almost tragedy. I mean, um, the court's been attacked before. I mean, that's inevitable for any high-profile decision. It was attacked after Bush v. Gore from the, from the left. It was attacked from the right after Obergefell when it held that there was a right to same-sex marriage in the Constitution. It's now being attacked again from the, the left over the abortion decision in Dobbs. I mean, criticism of the court for high-profile decisions is, is nothing new. But it does seem like we've seen a fever pitch this time that we've never seen before. And certainly with um, the, the attempt on Justice Kavanaugh's life, um, it, it does feel like we've crossed into to new territory. And I think uh, it's, it's scary. Um, and it's, as I say, it's, it's tragic. And I hope we're able to, um, to back away from, um, from that cliff. I hope that some of that criticism will subside as the court maybe is able to step out of the public eye a little bit more. I think what makes this moment maybe different, Jack, is that you know for the last several decades, the court has been 5-4 um, or been perceived to be 5-4. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a, a, a narrowly divided court. Um, and now because of composition changes on the court, there are three Democratic appointees instead of four. Um, and so we'll see whether the fact that we've moved from what people viewed as a 5-4 court to what they view as a 6-3 or a 5-1-3 court, um, we'll see whether that uh, makes a, a, a permanent or a lasting shift in the way that the public approaches the, the court. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, observation uh, from someone who's got a, a firsthand look. Well, I'm sure that during your time as clerk for uh, Justice Thomas uh, and during your 30 cases that you presented before the Supreme Court, you probably had some interesting and funny situations develop other than stranding your family after your first case. Uh, any one or two that kind of come to come to mind? Well, if you think back to that very first case, so it was a tough case. We were supporting the city of New York and, and, and New York had a pretty tough time during the argument. I got a pretty tough time. So it wasn't clear at all who was going to win. And Justice Thomas has a tradition where he has lunch with his law clerks every so often in town. I went to one of these lunches before the decision came out. And at the end of the lunch, he said, you know, hey, hang back for a minute. And as we're walking out of the restaurant, he put his arm around me. Um, and he said, look, I'm not going to tell you anything about how the case came out. I would never do that. I don't want to talk about that. I just want to tell you that no matter how it comes out, 
you know, you should be very proud of how you did. And I'm very proud of you. And you should know that none of this turns on wins and losses and you'll come up here again and there'll be another day. So of course I walked away thinking, well, surely I lost. <laughs> um, and so for the next couple of months, you know, I just sort of dragged myself around the house disappointed because I'm a fairly competitive guy. Um, and the decision came out, it was 9-0, we won, and an opinion written by Justice Thomas. And about five minutes after they issued the decision, he called me on my cell phone and he said, I punked you, I got you, I knew I had you, you were lower than a snake's belly, you thought you lost that case. <laughs> uh, and so it goes to show, he's got a great sense of humor. He did definitely get me. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that that's that's one that, that stands out. I've had some good exchanges with the justices over, over time, though. So I've been fortunate, Jack. I've been able to use humor a few times in the in the Supreme Court and and get away with it. <laughs> well, he certainly got you. That's for sure. Um, the last question I want to ask you: um, from a legal perspective, what do you feel is the most challenging issue our country is facing right now today? I think there are no shortage of challenging issues, Jack, unfortunately, but um, but I think maybe near the top of the list is immigration. I think everybody recognizes that some overhaul of the nation's immigration laws is, uh, is probably warranted, but there's a deep difference on what sort of goals the overhaul should serve. Um, and that leaves us paralyzed from a policy perspective and the executive branch has you know, gone back and forth across administrations in terms of its enforcement priorities. I think all of that leaves us uh, in a very tough situation in, in uh, with respect to, to um, immigration. So I, I think that would be uh, that would be near the top of my list of of things to to tackle if I had a, a wish list in Congress. Well, there's no question that's a big one. that has got a lot of legs to it. Well, Jeff, listen, thank you so much for, for carving out time uh, to be with us today out of your schedule, which I know has to be incredibly tight. I know you lost some billable time to, to, to join us, and I appreciate that and hope that you'll continue to, to fight the good fight in our courts at a time when legal decisions are so critical to the moral health of our nation. Jack, thanks for having me. It was really an honor and a pleasure. Well, thanks for being with us today. And, and once again, I want to encourage each of you to make it your goal this week to be a positive influence in the lives of others. Uh, I look forward to having you back with us again next week as we welcome another interesting guest. Have a great week. Hey, before you go, we wanted to let you know about Jack's book called The Question, a guide to answering life's most important question. In this book, Jack shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide his life. Whether you are a spouse, parent, grandparent, friend, leader, educator, coach, or mentor, Jack's I Believe statements apply to all the roles he has played during his lifetime and can do the same for you. Jack's message applies to all people, ages, and careers. It's an easy read with compelling stories, enjoyable humor, and sincere transparency. The question is now available in ebook and paperback exclusively on Amazon. Go to jackwwilliams.com slash the question to learn more and buy your copy today. Again, thanks for joining us for this episode and join us next week for an all new episode of KnowledgeCast by Ideals.